Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the CX Cast, your source for all things experience. I am co-host Angelina Jenis, joined as always by Adele Sage. Hey, Adele. Hey, Angelina. Hey, hey. And today, a special treat. <laughs> I feel like we always have a special treat. We've got James McQuivy, who is Vice President and Principal Analyst on the Future of Work team with me. Hey, James. Hey there. Hello. We're excited to have you because you recently put out this report, Creativity Feeds the Future of Work. And we are excited to dig into that with you. We love creativity. It doesn't everyone. And we really want to understand the nuances of cultures that are creative, working norms that are creative. What does it mean to be a creative individual versus a creative organization? Let's dig into that. And I guess my first question for you are, what, what are some myths you uncovered when you were doing this research around creativity and organizations? Uh, it turns out to be really easy to identify the myths. And unfortunately, it's easy to identify because they're so visible. The, the main one is that people tend to think that creativity is a function of the person. Oh, she's creative, or oh, he's the creative person that we hired for this team. And, and it is true, there are certain roles that tend to attract people who are visibly creative. And so you say, oh, that's a creative person, and we got to hire more creative people. That is problem number one, because in fact, everyone's capable of creativity. But when we start to create narrow definitions of what creativity looks like, we actually exclude the possibility that more people around us, ourselves included, might qualify as creative. And in fact, give ourselves maybe a break for, I don't have to be super creative at work because nobody's expecting me to be. I'm not known as the creative one, so I don't have to expend that energy and that's incredibly inhibiting and I think unfortunate for the outcome for the organization. The second thing that is a myth is that organizations say, oh, no, no, we want everyone to be creative, but we want them to be creative in specific contexts as circumstances require. Like, oh, there's a big change in our market. Our competitor has done something that's really big and we need to respond. Let's go to an offsite where we can be creative for two days and we'll be creative and then we'll come back and do our regular job. And we've all participated in those brainstorms and those offsites. And we all know that for a moment, we can get the juices flowing. But I've had people literally say to me in those events on the breaks in between sessions, like, you know, this is all well and good. But tomorrow I go back to my regular job where none of this is really going to matter for me. And that's a very unfortunate admission on the part of people that they recognize that what's being asked of them, maybe these two days out of the entire year is not relevant to the rest of their job, that they're not being asked on a regular Monday to be creative at work. So those two big myths are the ones I'd love to smash, which is that being creative is a function of who you are. And the second one is that we need creativity only in narrow, specific circumstances that require it. I'm definitely guilty of saying I'm not creative. <laughs> but I do my best to foster creativity in others. So thank you for the reminder that uh, we need to believe in our own creative abilities. In the report, you talk about individual creativity versus organizational creativity. Can you talk about what that exactly means, what those types of creativity are? I'll tell you the backstory to this report because that's where it comes from, is trying to understand whether we can measure individual creativity and separate it from organizational creativity. Because 
I, I haven't encountered that executive who says, oh, I don't want people to be creative. Uh, at least I don't think I have. Yet at the same time, they don't necessarily create the organizational environment that invites people to be creative. And as you ask people what's inhibiting creativity, I have heard some executives, and I won't throw anyone under the bus on this over the years, but I have heard them say things like, well, we just didn't hire very creative people, or our people aren't very creative, or they basically push it off onto the person and say it's our employee's fault that they're not creative at work. And you can see, obviously, how damaging this is for the organization not to be willing to have the humility to, to see that the organization is partly at fault. But also, it is a fair question. You know, what is it about some people that encourages them to bring their creativity to work? Uh, and I say it that way because I'm trying to get us away from thinking that people either are or are not creative. Uh, one of the things that's most important to understand about the difference between individual creativity and organizational creativity is that the individual may well be incredibly creative, but just choose not to manifest that part of themselves at work. Because why would you? You know, how many times have you again been to that meeting where someone says, we want all of your best ideas and in everyone's heads are the memories of the last time they offered a really sharp idea that they thought was worth discussing and it was dismissed out of hand and someone said, oh, we tried that before. Or it wasn't maybe dismissed out of hand, but it never got picked up. No one followed up on it and no action came out of it. Well, people aren't dumb. They're going to learn, oh, when the boss asks for ideas, they don't really mean it. Well, what does the boss walk away with? Oh, my, my team, they're duds. They don't have any creativity <laughs> in them. And in fact, the team might be at home inventing amazing new, I don't know, quilting designs or, or approaching their training for their triathlon completely uniquely and creatively. But when they show up at work, they do what they're being paid for and go home. Well, whose fault is that? So anyway, we, we wanted to separate those two things. And it turns out you can actually separate them. And what you find is exactly what I've been hinting in the, the last minute of conversation, that there are people who manifest uh, curiosity and mental agility, which are components of creativity, but don't do so at work on a regular basis. So what that means is you think of it as, I don't know what metaphor to use here, but someone has a, whether it's a cell phone battery or a fuel tank, it's got full, it's full of energy. It's just that when they show up at work, they're in uh, battery saver mode. If you want to think of it that way, maybe that's the right metaphor to apply there. And so you have to ask yourself, okay, even though the raw materials might be there for some people more than others, and it is true, I'm not going to pretend that everyone is magically creative and they just open their mouth and creativity would flow out, partly because we've never taught people how to be creative, how to demonstrate their curiosity, how to respond to an invitation to be mentally agile in a way that would stimulate more creativity. We, we don't usually teach that. Did you go to Curiosity 101? No, you know, none, no. Of, none of us did. Uh, so fine. Th those are all issues. People have a certain amount of raw material, and then they need to be trained on how to use that raw material creatively at work. But then work is really on the hook to create the organizational creativity. And it can't be done in that once a year offsite at some wooded location where you tell everyone to be creative. It has to be a daily effort. That has to be the way that people think, oh, work wants me to be creative. Otherwise, they will stay in battery saver mode. They won't turn on you know, full battery mode. That's really interesting that you broke down creativity into a few different categories of behaviors, like curiosity and agility. I don't think of myself as someone that can just sit in a blank room and 
come up with amazing ideas. But if I understand you correctly, it's about maybe doing research and making connections between things could be considered that, figuring out how to do things, iterating on things, doing things slightly differently could be creative. So it's almost like there needs to be some bit of education around what creativity is. Is that something you've seen in the research? 100%. And it shows up, you know, as we've written the report and clients contact us to discuss it in more in depth. And they'll say things like, how do we create a creativity culture? And I'll say, well, first of all, don't send around an email telling everyone that the company wants them to be creative. Well, that, that doesn't, doesn't do anything. <laughs> yeah. Well, unfortunately, many companies have tried that. You know, you have an executive say, we want you to be creative, or sometimes they use the word innovative interchangeably with the word creative. And there is a difference, which we can get to. But they don't then equip people to understand that creativity, like any other thing that our bodies are capable of, mentally or physically, you have to repeat something. You have to train yourself to do it. It's like playing the piano. It's like uh, running marathons. You, you don't just suddenly decide to run a marathon and suddenly can. I mean, most of us can't. <laughs> but you train those muscles. You put the miles on your legs. The same thing. And that's true, actually, for a 5K or a marathon. It doesn't really matter. I don't know why I picked marathon. But the same thing is true about playing the piano. You don't just sit down and say, well, I logically understand how music is written. And so I can just read the, the notes on the page and turn them into beautiful music with my fingers. No, your body has to go through the motion of doing that over and over and over until you have a generalizable fitness and an ability to read music and play it, an ability to go out and run and use your legs to, to do things that require exertion and effort. The same things are true about creativity. We have to specify these are the component muscles of creativity, and each of them can be developed independently. But more importantly, they have to be rehearsed. You have to train these things so that in a moment where someone says something that you didn't anticipate they were going to say, instead of your brain trying to say, is that true or false, which is a very common way for us to interact with the world, your brain says, what could I learn from that? How could I reply to that? What could I add to that? How could I expand that thought? Well, those are muscles that if you haven't ever used, you don't magically know how to use them in that moment. And so we're trying to help people recognize that this is a set of skills that you can develop. And, and I briefly mentioned curiosity and mental agility. Those are probably the two that we work on the most because they are easiest to work on, if we're frank. But secondarily, they're also incredibly effective in that you can already see, even in a couple of hours, how effective they are to improve. You know, you'll often hear people talk about, well, we want to talk about lateral thinking, or they'll just say creative thinking in general, or critical thinking, which is kind of an old term now that has kind of been watered down from its original intention, unfortunately. And I try to step away from all of those phrases because people think they know what they mean. And I say, let's think about curiosity, which is the ability to seek out and learn entirely new things. Now, there's very few things in the world that are entirely new, but bear with me for a minute. So if I'm you know, overhearing a conversation between some colleagues or even on the bus or when people get to ride buses again, you overhear a conversation and someone talks about a topic you've never known anything about, and it can be square dancing or it can be crochet. Do you listen to say and learn, what is that about? Why do people like to do that? What do they get out of it? 
Or do you say, that's something I'm not interested in and I never will be. And you just shut that part of your brain down. When you are curious, you have the curiosity muscle working all the time. You've learned how to have it turn out. And it's no risk. Listening to someone talk about a hobby of theirs or a passion that they care about, it doesn't hurt you at all. But for some reason, our brains, unless we train this ability, think, oh, if I have to listen to that topic that I'm not familiar with, it'll take effort, it'll take time. I'd rather just you know, fill in the blank with read text messages or scroll Twitter or whatever the case might be. But learning how to appreciate completely new things is one of those key muscles that's a component of creativity. And mental agility is its inverse. Mental agility is the ability to reassess and reappraise things that you thought you already understood. So it's not new information, it's a new way to think about old information. And these two components of creativity, the muscles that are at work when we are being creative, the ability to switch back and forth between those two things and to hear someone's brand new idea and be interested in it, and then to expand on it or rethink it or reappraise it collaboratively with someone else. That's a very powerful tool set, which becomes creativity at work as long as your environment encourages it. I like that the the imagery there, and also, you know, from my understanding of neuroscience, those are the kinds of things that keep our brains healthy in the long term, especially as we age. They actually do well, and it works both ways. The healthier you are, the more you can do these things. But the more you do these things, the healthier you stay. So, you know, if we were doing an aging seminar for people my age or older, yes, I would definitely say do this every day because twenty nine plus is that what you mean? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, at my ripe old age of uh, 29, sure. Uh, but the idea that you can actually get an, a jump start on some of these things by just getting a good night's sleep, that is a surprise when people realize how much of their ability to exert that energy and respond with creativity is just a function of whether you slept well or whether you're eating things that are nourishing your body or taxing your body. Uh, you know, we don't want to suddenly become self help gurus here, but yeah, if you want to be more creative, tune the instrument first. You know, you don't play that piano without tuning it first. And the same thing is true of your creative apparatus. You have to tune it, train it, and then, wow, it'll be able to do amazing things for you. To that point about aging well, you also do a lot of research on future fitness. And maybe you could quickly define that for those who haven't heard of it before, as well as talk about how it's related to creativity. Well, it's important. And you've been hearing it actually in the language that I'm using. Uh, I didn't even realize I was doing that. But using the term muscle to describe these things comes from our work on future fitness. Because in future fitness, we start with the individual level and we say, all right, how fit is someone? How ready are they to expend energy on approaching the future? And that can mean approaching new ideas in a curious way. It can also mean having the ability to take risks, which is an important part of approaching the future. Collaborate with others to solve problems, which is, these are all things that we measure under future fitness. And, and future fitness, we call future fitness precisely because it's like any other measure of fitness. It can be improved with training and attention and, and sometimes coaching. So we, we don't want to get in a situation where we say, oh, some people are ready for the future and some people just can't be. Everyone has some default level of future fitness. And our goal is to help everyone get a little more fit and to help the organization recognize their responsibility to encourage that and reward it. Because as I said, it, it won't happen if the organization doesn't create that environment. So within Future Fitness, we actually measure nine attributes of people. And, and again, we're, we're looking at 
where they happen to be right now. It's a snapshot of where they are right now. It's not who they are, it's how they are, knowing that we can improve all of these things. And of those nine things, three of them make up what we call the innovation layer, and it's curiosity, it's mental agility, and it's risk. Those three areas of just mental hardware, or sorry, mental processes that are software to your mental hardware. And if you don't download and install that software, the hardware's there, you're just not using it in the maximally future fit way. So that's what we're trying to accomplish. We, we'd love a world in which everyone were 1% more future fit, 1% more creative. I imagine the payoff would be phenomenal. I want to go back to something you talked about very briefly earlier, the difference between creativity and innovation. Innovation is, is such a hot word right now. It's just thrown around all the time, culture of innovation, the companies wanting to be innovative. How does creativity fit into that and, and how are they different? It's a very important question because I think people seem to think that innovation is this magic solution to respond to a moment of crisis. And let's admit, we saw incredible innovation during the pandemic, just up and down, different industries, different roles. It's just uh, humbling to watch people respond to this awful, awful situation with incredible innovation. And yes, creativity. The problem with thinking about innovation again, as one of these things that happens in response to things. Oh, we have a competitor who's changed the market. We have a new device that's been invented. We have a new this or a new that. And then we innovate around those changes in the market. Well, of course you can. But the problem with that, again, is that innovation then becomes this tool that you keep locked away in your toolbox until that moment comes, and then you bring it out. So what we're trying to do is create a world where creativity is the norm. We call it everyday creativity. The organization encourages creativity, whether it's curiosity, mental agility, in everyday processes. And you even could develop a language for this. Uh, this is one of the things that, you know, in our more in-depth workshops with clients, we talk about what is the language about curiosity, agility, creativity that you are going to use in the organization so that you can come to a meeting. And you can imagine a manager saying in the meeting, in this meeting right now, I need the curiosity muscle of your creativity because I just need us to expand the aperture on this as wide as possible and curiosity will help us do that. So if you give people those explicit instructions, it lets them know which muscle to use and how to use it in that environment, which is really great. And it will result in more innovation. So if we're increasing the amount of creativity that's happening all the time, we're creating processes that encourage creativity, the result will be more innovation. And, and that's, that's an important thing to recognize, that innovation is not a discrete tool from creativity. And if you want innovation to happen more often and you want to have, have it happen with more effect, then you need creativity to be turned up a notch or two or three or maybe all the way to 11. I also found it interesting in the report, you talked about how often executives will be the ones who have the idea and then everyone else has to execute on it. And so the, the, the idea that the creativity is only allowed at the top echelon of an organization. This is really an unfortunate and awful thing about the history of business is that the model for the past was that the the people at top, and maybe it's the founder, maybe it's the inventor, if you want to go back to something like the invention of the iPod or the invention of the BlackBerry, which was 
created by a single individual who started one of the most successful devices in history is the BlackBerry. And all of that comes from one person who then says, I'm the genius that invented this. And now I just need to tell you what to do with it. And then we will be successful as an organization. And of course, we know that none of us have BlackBerry devices anymore, precisely because that company never allowed the employees in the organization to step up and say, thank you for giving us that great idea to begin with as a seed. But my own creativity has led me to innovate in thinking about our market, about our customer, about what's happening with this new thing called the iPhone. I mean, it's a well-documented case study by now. It's so long ago that we've probably even forgotten some of the lessons that we could learn from it. But that was a classic case where what was a very creative and innovative founding of that organization didn't persist as such precisely because individuals in the organization were never empowered to generate their own hypotheses and their own tests of whether the product should be or could be evolved to meet the evolving needs of the customer base. So if you were to to say, well, maybe that's a one-off example and maybe that's just BlackBerry and my company's not like that. I want you to understand that all companies are like that now. The rate at which information is changing in your marketplace, the rate at which customer experience is advancing in your marketplace, the rate at which non-traditional competitors are eyeing your space and saying, I wonder if we could do that better. I mean, think of an Uber to the hotel business and so, I'm sorry, Uber to the taxi business and Airbnb to the hotel business as easy examples, but it's happening all over the place. New companies that are creating financial products that traditional banks are saying, well, we can't do that. That's not what banks do. Well, someone's doing it. So the rate at which that is happening to you really requires that everyone think of themselves as BlackBerry circa 2008, a year after the iPhone was invented, and to be ready all the time to creatively respond in internal processes that lead to innovation. And there's a, there's a famous memo, I want to say it was from 2011 in the BlackBerry case, where an employee said, here's what we could have done four years ago. And here's the information that we had available four years ago and chose not to act on. Because as the lower down people in the organization, they were not given authority to challenge the instructions handed down from on high. And it's just, you can't do that anymore. You can't do that anymore. And I hope that more executives will learn that because certainly more employees from our research, more employees are coming to that conclusion every day. And they're saying, you know, if my leaders don't want to hear from me, and don't want the value of my knowledge and my creativity, then why am I here? Okay, James, I'm going to embarrass you a little bit and quote a part of your report here. And you can maybe help tease it out a little bit. So you wrote, everyday creativity rests on the energy created by the tension of having enough ambiguity in how to do things while still having high standards for what gets done. Can you talk a little bit about the ambiguity piece and what those high standards are? This starts to, well, really address this problem of employees. They do want to be told what's expected of them so that they can do it, do it well, be recognized and be paid. I'm not suggesting that people just want to be thrown into a room and, and told, make up your job and we won't know whether we like what you did until later on when we decide to, to fire you or not. <laughs> so there, there has to be organizational certainty. There has to be structure and so on. But the case of BlackBerry, the case of, you know, pick your favorite example of an organization that failed to adapt in the face of changing uh, moments in their industry. All of those things tell us the, the same thing, that there needs to be clarity of the objective, 
But there needs to be room for someone to say, well, that objective could be seen from a slightly different angle. There might be a different way to do it. And as a result of that ambiguity, it gives people permission to be creative. And those of us who deal with at Forrester, we deal with a lot of clients who are in a lot of different circumstances. And they'll come to us to have a, a session and say, look, here's what we're trying to accomplish as an organization. And your research says we're supposed to do X. What advice do you have for me? And as we start to give them the advice on what we've learned from our research, from our conversations with other clients, sometimes their faces sink. And I, I sort of pause and I say, it sounds like what I'm saying isn't landing very well. What's going on? And they'll say things like, oh, what you're suggesting is not going to go over very well with our senior management. And I'll, you know, I'll try to unpack that a little bit. It's like, what do you mean it's not going to go? Well, it's like, well, so-and-so on the executive team is really committed to this particular view or this particular point. See that the ambiguity has been deliberately stifled with the belief, I'm sure, from the executive that if I'm clear about what I want, then people will feel more certain about how to please me. But remember, it's not the executive we're trying to please. It's the customer we're trying to please. So the executive has to say, our goal is to please the customer. And we have some patterns around that that I'd like you to follow. But when you see something that needs to be improved or broken, please improve it or break it or come up with a proposal for how we might break it. And organizations that don't create that ambiguity will not get that voluntary creativity that we're talking about here. We, we want creativity to be spontaneous and voluntary. We don't want it to be a process where you have an idea and you say, well, who do I have to meet with to hint that I'm thinking about proposing this? And how many flagpoles do I need to run this up to see if anyone salutes or fires before I decide to really unleash this really cool idea? Any organization that requires people to go through those hurdles has absolutely already lost the game. We had years ago, uh, we had the then CEO of Adidas America or Adidas USA at one of our events speaking to our executives, uh, clients, and he deliberately identified that in their organization, this was one of their problems is that they had given everybody really clear standards on what Adidas America was supposed to do. And um, he recognized that it was squelching bad ideas, sure, but it was also squelching good ideas. And so we had to institute a process and he actually created a rotating board of people from all levels in the organization whose job it was to vet ideas from the organization and decide which ones might get, first of all, a $100 bonus for the person who proposed the idea so that you're stimulating some voluntary creativity. And then second of all, a committee that would go through and try to see if the idea was feasible and come up with a plan to act on it and assess whether or not we could act on it. Those kinds of steps seem really straightforward from the outside, but to make them happen in an organization is very, very challenging. And many companies don't want to deal with all of the ambiguity and uncertainty that that invites. And those are the companies that just won't be as creative. So given everything that you've just said, what's your top advice for us as individuals in, in helping to bring out our own creativity and for our organizations? You've said a lot of things. If we're going to take away a handful of things each that we can do to build the muscle, what should we be doing? As an individual, I would strongly encourage you to take good care of your health. It doesn't matter how well the organization creates the ideal innovation and creativity program. If you are not sleeping well, if you are not managing your personal relationships in a way that helps fortify you and drains you, you won't have energy to give it work. And we're all going to go through moments like that in our lives. Fine. I understand that. 
but we can influence how much of that energy we have. Then go to work and look around and say, what are the three lowest hanging pieces of fruit in this organization that I've always been a little frustrated with and I've always thought, well, that's ridiculous. Then instead of just being frustrated, I could propose a solution. Pick three, go down and see, how would I propose a way to improve that? And as long as you don't personalize it, as long as you don't say, oh, the people in charge of this are awful, you're not gonna create enemies necessarily by just saying, hey, wouldn't it be great if we improved this? Go ahead and try that. You know, start to experiment with the organizational setting. Now, as a manager, what managers need to do is invite that contribution, act on it and reward it, even when it doesn't pay off. And this is the crucial part. You know, at Forrester, we just recently had Trevor Noah participate in our B2B summit. And he gave some advice to people about innovation because he's had to innovate his nightly show uh, throughout the pandemic when he didn't have an audience and he's recording from his own home and all of these things. And he, he made a very powerful example. He said, in the world of diamond mining, you have to dig a lot of dirt to find the diamond. And if you dig a shovel full of dirt and you don't find the diamond and you give up, you're giving up the diamonds. Well, that's the way you have to think of it as a manager. I have to invite a lot of digging before I'm going to get some really powerful ideas. So you have to reward people, not just for the diamonds, but for the digging. Thank you for engaging in this process today. Thank you for being curious today. Thank you for demonstrating your mental agility. I'm learning from you, even if we didn't just dramatically change the business. And that's a management style issue that I, I hope more of our managers can uh, embrace. Thank you, James, for joining us and, and giving us the inspiration to go out and dig for diamonds. This has been really interesting and informative, and I really hope that our listeners take away some meaningful actions that they can take to build creativity in their own lives. So thank you, James, for joining us. Well, thank you very much. Everybody, that was James McQuivy, VP and Principal Analyst on the Future of Work team here at Forrester. And that's all for this episode of the CX Cast. Thanks so much.